There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. And I think cognitively I'm better than I was 20 years ago. I don't know why. I said, doctor, you know, Doc Ronnie, right? I did say, what about a cognitive test? He said, well, you know, it's not that easy. And I took it and I aced it. I think it was 35, 30 questions. And let me tell you, you know, they always show you the first one, like a giraffe, a tiger, or this, or that, a whale. Which one is the whale? Donald Trump is again bragging about acing the dementia test while claiming that presidents should have full immunity for any crimes they might want to commit. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder joins me on that. And on a big victory in Louisiana, where a new legislative map with two majority black districts is advancing in the state legislature. Plus, with a border deal on the table, which Senate Republicans say is a great deal, Trump's MAGA caucus in the House is saying no, because they want to continue to stoke fear ahead of the fall election. But we begin tonight with Donald Trump, the leading candidate for the Republican presidential nomination, telling Americans very clearly that he should be able to murder and jail anyone he wants to, and no one should be able to stop him, not a single person, place, or thing. To that vein, in the dead of night, Trump fired off one of his unhinged social media rants demanding total presidential immunity from prosecution over anything, including, and I'm quoting here, events that cross the line. Because in his words, it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. To be clear, Trump seems to think that it is hard to determine whether having SEAL Team 6 assassinate your political opponent or selling pardons or selling state secrets are bad and illegal. These are just a few things his lawyer argued should be covered by total presidential immunity and only subject to criminal prosecution if and only after Congress manages to not just impeach a president but also to convict them in the Senate, something that has never happened in 248 years of U.S. history. It is fair to say that immunity would also include his plans for sweeping raids, rounding up 11 million migrants into internment camps, a federal takeover of Democratic cities, allowing troops to shoot any protesters they want to, a president ordering the military to drop bombs on Mexico, and the Justice Department to throw into prison the entire Biden family, plus Merrick Garland, plus General Mark Milley, plus every prosecutor and judge who have gone up against Donald Trump, while granting every police officer total immunity to brutalize and kill at will. Which is the point that he made in the same post where he wrote, quote, you can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional rogue cop or bad apple. Joining me now is former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder. He's currently chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And Attorney General Holder, thank you so much for being here. I, I want to just get your reaction as a former attorney general of the United States to a president claiming that he has such 
broad immunity that he could assassinate his political opponents. Well, you know, that argument really indicates how absurd uh, the position is of the, the Trump camp. You know, just because a former president has filed a, a court paper and because we've been talking about it for, you know, an extended period of time, you know, I think we need to step back and understand that the assertion that he's making is absurd. It is crazy. It has no basis in the Constitution, in our precedent, no basis in law. He's just making stuff up in order to try to keep himself you know, out of jail. And the notion that you would give a president total immunity to do anything that he or she wanted to do is inconsistent with the American Revolution. That's what kings get to do, you know, not presidents. And the very examples that you just talked about, if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue under the position that he's taking, he would not be liable to prosecution. That is clearly, clearly not the way in which the founders intended for presidents or any American citizen to be viewed. Uh, I am looking here, and, and we were reading through, and my wonderful producers are reading through, this is the Supreme Court filing that was made uh, today by Donald Trump, because it should be absurd, uh, A.G. Holder, but this is going up, uh, going to the Supreme Court that was built by Leonard Leo for very political purposes and to achieve very specific conservative ends. And the arguments that are being made made by them uh, include these five, that the president is not an officer of the United States, uh, and because that term was not specifically used in the Constitution for the president, that Donald Trump did not engage in an insurrection, something that 177, 179 Republicans in the Congress have signed an amicus brief agreeing that he did not engage in insurrection, that the judiciary is the only one that can enforce Section 3 of the Constitution of the 14th Amendment, and they need implementing legislation to do it, that the Colorado uh, decision violates court precedent for preventing states from prescribing their own qualifications for the presidency of the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling violated the electors clause, which requires states to appoint their presidential electors in such manner as the legislature may direct. Do any of the arguments that I've just stated sound like something not that a normal Supreme Court would accept, but that this Supreme Court majority would accept? Well, you know, they get an A for creativity. I mean, you know, they had to set up, I'm, I'm sure, through long nights and long days to come up with those five bases for um, their argument. But even for this Supreme Court, with this ultra conservative um, super majority, there's just not a basis for finding in favor of the assertions that he is making. Um, you know, the court's legitimacy is at stake here in a way that I, I think really goes to, you know, the way in which it will be viewed, that body will be viewed by the American people. To rule for the Trump camp, to say that there's any basis to those five uh, assertions that he has made, really puts at risk how the court will be viewed by the American public. There is, again, no constitutional basis for it. There is no historical precedent for it. Um, that is not the way in which, you know, our nation has been formed or for which the American Revolution uh, was actually conducted. And I think that anybody who lines up in support of that really puts at risk our democracy and really puts at risk the notion that we are one person, one vote, that the people decide things, that no one is above the law, um, puts at risk the, the whole notion of, you know, the rule of law.
And, you know, the thing is, I think what a lot of people, when we talk about the, the January 6th insurrection, which was, was an insurrection, um, part of it was a denial of the right to vote, right? It was essentially saying that right. in the states where Donald Trump, the swing states where Donald Trump lost, those voters in predominantly black parts of that state are illegitimate, that their votes are illegitimate and that Trump should be awarded the presidency despite that. It was an attempt also to misuse the Justice Department for those ends. So I want to talk about the Justice Department, which you, of course, used to run. Donald Trump is vowing to use the Justice Department, if he gets back into the White House, to prosecute and persecute his political enemies. Talk to me about the risks of his being able to actually accomplish that, because in a second term, there would be no normies left. There would be people like this guy. Let me see if I have it. This is Mike Davis. This is somebody who has claimed that he is in line to potentially be attorney general of the United States. Here's what he's saying he would do with that job. I will rain hell on Washington, D.C. We've talked about this, Ben. I have five lists uh, ready to go, and they're growing. List number one, we're going to fire. We're going to fire a lot of people in the executive branch in the deep state. Number two, we're going to indict. We're going to indict Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and James Biden and every other scumball, sleazeball Biden, except for the five-year-old granddaughter who they refused to acknowledge uh, uh, for five years until the political pressure got to Joe Biden. Number three, we're going to deport. We're going to deport a lot of people, 10 million people and growing, uh, anchor babies, their parents, their grandparents. We're going to put kids in cages. It's going to be glorious. We're going to detain a lot of people in the D.C. Gulag uh, and Gitmo. And uh, list number five, I'm going to recommend a lot of pardons. Every January 6th defendant uh, is going to get a pardon. How concerned are you that that will be the kind of Department of Justice Donald Trump will run in real life if he becomes president again? Well, I think we have to take them, you know, at their word and take Donald Trump at his word. Uh, whether or not that idiot becomes um, attorney general or not, they will, Trump will try to put in place an attorney general uh, who will do the his do his bidding. But they've also learned from the first term. And it will not only be who is the attorney general, the question will also be who is the head of the criminal division in the Justice Department, who are the U.S. attorneys around the country, and what hiring authority those U.S. attorneys have, so that we will have uh, an administration in place that will actually do the kinds of things that they tried to do in the first term, but were thwarted by career people and by people, to be fair, other political appointees who decided that they would not go against the rule of law. I think that a second Trump term, and this is something that voters really need to keep in mind when they go to the polls in November, a second Trump term would have a politicized, weaponized, forget politicized, weaponized United States Department of Justice that would do the kinds of things that, uh, with all due respect, that idiot um, just, just said. And the thing is, is that, you know, the, the attempts to weaponize the Justice Department the first time, as you said, even Bill Barr who was in many other ways a stooge to Donald Trump and willing to, you know, do his political bidding, it was too much for him. I mean, what do you make of the fact that we now have, you know, a substantial part of the Republican Party that is okay with that? Because these senators, one after the other, are endorsing Donald Trump and even claiming that the attempts to do that were not an insurrection. All but, I believe, seven of the United States senator, Republican United States senator, signed on to this amicus brief saying that there was no insurrection, even though they literally physically ran for their lives on January 6th, 2021. 
I mean, you have to look at what it is that they're talking about. That is the Trump, um, the Trump campaign, uh, the pres- former president himself, and think of the America that they're trying to create. You have a president who is beyond the reach of the law. You have a Justice Department that goes after political opponents on absolutely no basis. He's, he's going to prosecute um, Joe Biden. Well, exactly for what? That's not going to bother them. You would have a United States of America that would be unrecognizable to us. That would be one that you'd see more uh, in Putin's Russia as opposed to the United States that we've come to all know and love. And this is really what this is about. This question is about whether or not our democracy will endure, whether or not our democracy um, will survive. They have put the interests of one man and the views that they have uh, that support that one man above everything else. You know, they are happy with or comfortable with the notion of autocracy, um, of dictatorship, as opposed to um, democracy. And people say, wait a minute, now Holder's overstating the case. That is not, this is not an overstate. You have to take them at their word and look at what it is they are proposing and the impact of the policies that they are, they would try to put in place. American democracy um, could end with the election of of Donald Trump. I want to point you back to um, this statement, this unhinged statement that Donald Trump posted. Um, He made a reference to the police and says that you have to basically allow for bad apples in the police department. That's the analogy he used, that you have to essentially allow police violence because you want good law enforcement. And so to do that, you just have to live with the fact that there'll be some bad apples, essentially saying some police are going to kill people and you just have to live with that. What do you make of the fact that he keeps going back to that idea of wanting police violence to be acceptable um, and using that as the analogy for his own administration? Well, that's consistent with, you know, his worldview. But that is not something the American people necessarily have to accept or or, or should accept. You know, the, the notion that there is a tension between good, respectful law enforcement uh, and keeping the American people safe is simply not true. I mean, there there is no tension between those two things. And there's no reason for us to accept the fact that some cops are going to abuse their powers. Some cops are going to be unnecessarily um, violent, inappropriately violent. We don't have to accept that and if we want to have good law enforcement. And by the same token, we should not have to accept the fact that we want to that, uh, that a president should be allowed to do the kinds of things that uh, that he is, in fact, um, proposing. You know, if you want to have a good, safe, prosperous America, you can still have a good functioning democracy where the American people get to decide uh, what the direction of the nation is, where everybody has the right to vote, where everybody is respected, regardless of economic situation, ethnicity, race, gender, LGBTQ status. Uh, all of these things are, are, are possible in having a nation that um we think that can be, uh, as I said, prosperous and 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 very successful. You know, this notion of having to have, uh, I guess, a dictator, having an authoritarian figure to uh, have police officers um, who go rogue. All of that is inconsistent um, with a, a successful America. Let me ask you to assess, uh, as a uh, obviously a former prosecutor, former attorney general, Jack Smith's case uh, before um, in D.C., his D.C. case, basically the insurrection case, the coup case. How confident are you that this is a case um, that can be won and that it will be completed before the election? Well, I think if you look at three possibilities, are you going to get 12 people to acquit Donald Trump? That is to say that he's not guilty. No, 
that I think is just not going to happen. Will you get 12 people to say that uh, he is in fact guilty? I think, yeah, the possibility of that is extremely high. And I think that's what actually will happen. I think their only hope is that middle possibility that you come up with one or two jurors who, for whatever reason, hang the jury and don't. Therefore, we don't get a a result. I think the case is strong. Uh, I think that with the judge that you have there, it's likely to be tried, maybe not on the date that she originally set. But I would expect to see within a couple of months of that, um, that the case will actually go to trial. And they're going to try to delay that case as much as they possibly can, because a conviction there or a conviction in any of the cases in which he's indicted, if he can be labeled a, a convicted felon. All the polls say that his support really starts to go down in really significant ways, not among his core, perhaps, but around the periphery of his core. And certainly with regard to independence, they pull back from him. And as a result of that, they can do all they can to try to make sure that they delay this case as much as is possible. And they seem to have an ally when it comes to the documents case with regards to, uh, you know, Judge Cannon, who I think is going to do all she can to uh, to actually delay, delay the case. You will note that I did not mention that case uh, for that very reason. Our Attorney General Holder, please stay with us uh, for just my, uh, a moment, because I do after this break, I want to talk with you about actually some good news for voters in Louisiana. The state of Louisiana has actually ruled in favor uh, of reversing some pretty egregious gerrymandering. And I want to talk with you about that uh, on the other side of the break. So please just stay with us for a moment. And everybody, please stay there. We'll be right back. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Back with me is former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder and A.G. Holder. Uh, let, let's share with uh, our viewers some good news. Um, a, a congressional map adding a second majority black district has passed the state Senate in the state of Louisiana. Um, it still has a ways to go. It still has to pass the House. Thirty three percent of Louisiana's population is black. Only 17 percent of the state's congressional districts are majority black. The new map would actually make those two numbers match. What's the significance of that and how confident are you that this will make it all the way to the governor's desk? Well, this is hugely significant and it is a validation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, If you look at Louisiana in the same way that we looked at um, Alabama, you will see that African-Americans in those states have been too long denied the opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. The cases that we brought in Alabama, as well as in Louisiana, were actually upheld by the United States Supreme Court. The Alabama case was upheld by the court is now being applied um, in Louisiana. And I'm actually pretty confident that we're going to have out of Louisiana, as we will have out of Alabama, a majority black um, district where it should have been existed for, you know, for time immemorial. 
the fact is that in Louisiana, as well as in Alabama, the state legislatures there have drawn districts not in conformity with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And this ultra-conservative United States Supreme Court uh, recognized that that was the case and said that you have to draw these districts in the way that um, are now being drawn in Louisiana. So I think this is... Um, this is really, really good news. Uh, Mike Johnson, who people uh, sometimes may forget, is from Louisiana. He is a congressman from Louisiana. This is his, his take on these developments. We've just seen and are very concerned with the proposed congressional map. Should the state not prevail at trial, there are multiple other map options that are legally compliant and do not require the unnecessary surrender of a Republican seat in Congress. Now, we can certainly understand what his concern is. He's got like a two-seat majority. Anybody's homesick one day, he's down to, you know, almost nothing. But so are you confident that this this new map, this new much fairer map, will withstand a Supreme Court that has seemed quite hostile to the Voting Rights Act in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think the Supreme Court in the Allen versus Milligan case, the Alabama case, really took out the position that I think I would expect that it would follow as it looks at what comes out of Louisiana, which is to say that when you've got a cohesive um, a community of interest, when you have the numbers that you have that you quoted in Louisiana, um, that you should create, in fact, that second um, black opportunity district. Uh, this is what we have litigated. Our National Redistricting Foundation component litigated that case um, in Louisiana, litigated the case uh, in Alabama. And it is for that reason that I think that we are going to see the Supreme Court, if for whatever reason, the legislature and the governor in Louisiana don't do the right thing. I think the federal courts uh, will impose upon them uh, the districts as they should be constructed. When you were attorney general, you brought a lot of cases. Uh, you were pursuing folk uh, when they were violating the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and, and I, and I want to ask you just about this current attorney general. I'm not asking you to give him a job performance review, but they've been a little less litigious when it comes to this. But here is the state of what's happening right now, because there are groups like LDF that have been out there really fighting this, awaiting court decisions on their maps and on gerrymandering. Florida, South Carolina, Texas, North Carolina and Arkansas already ordered, as we just discussed, to redraw their map, Louisiana. Uh, new majority black districts approved in Georgia and Alabama. What all of that has in common is those are the states below the Mason-Dixon line, the former slave states where 52 percent of African-Americans still live and where gerrymandering is the most aggressive. Do you believe that this attorney general's office has been aggressive enough in trying to defend the right to vote, again, of the places where a majority of black voters live? Yeah, well, I think the Justice Department's got a number of things that it has to consider. But I think that, you know, the interests of African-Americans in those places, as well as the interests of Americans in other parts of the country, has really been uh, validated, vindicated and looked after um, by other entities, um, which is not to be a criticism of the Justice Department. It's just a, a recognition of the cases, for instance, that, as I said, the National Redistricting Foundation has brought the NAACP, the League, League of Women Voters, um, Common Cause. Uh, and it's not only the South that worries me, it's also you know, the, the Midwest. I mean, you see what's going on in Ohio and in Wisconsin. You know, we live in an era of perpetual redistricting. I mean, it, this is no longer a one-year thing. Uh, and we certainly see that African-Americans have historically been those who have been most disenfranchised. But if you look at what's going on in Wisconsin, for instance, um, white folks um, in, in Wisconsin have been denied, denied the opportunity to have a representative um, government at the state as well as at the federal uh, congressional representation um, level. And there's a lawsuit that's going on there now. 
Um, and so, you know, it, it, I think our work has really been successful. The New York Times said this is the most fair redistricting that we've seen in the last um, 40 years. If you look at all the districts, about 75% now are considered to be fair, but that still means that 25% are considered to be unfair. So there is additional work um, that we have to do. The battle for um, redistricting um, goes on. What happens in these court cases and um, over the course of these next few months will really determine, I think, the congressional majority in 2024. Uh, and all we're fighting for is fairness, you know, fairness, fairness for um, regardless of what your ethnicity is, what your race is, regardless of what part of the country um, you live in. It, let's draw the maps in a fair way and let the people actually decide. That's something that I think Democrats are comfortable with, Republicans understanding that they're Policy choices are not necessarily supported by the American people want to put their thumb on the scale and yeah. disenfranchise um, African-Americans as well as um, white voters. Yeah, indeed. And indigenous voters in the Dakotas. And you could go on and on and on. Uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate you uh, and be well. All right. Be well, Joey. Thank you very much. All right. Coming up, the way House Republicans are wailing and gnashing their teeth about an immigration crisis. You would think that they'd want to actually do something to fix it. Crazy talk, right? We'll be right back. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. You would be forgiven for not knowing the term PSYOP if you're not a right-wing conspiracist or from a military background. It is short for psychological operations. It essentially means an effort to influence the state of mind or motives of a target to a certain point of view. You could also say that the Republicans' ultimate PSYOP is immigration. They use it to scare not just white working-class MAGA voters, but Americans in general about the threat of a migrant invasion. When in reality, they have no intention of ever fixing the yes, rather overwhelmed, underperforming immigration system in this country. Case in point, red state governors are busing and flying migrants to blue cities like New York to get people in those non-border cities to freak out about an influx of impoverished non-English speakers in their midst. They're racing to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over border policy with neither evidence of wrongdoing or even his testimony. And Republicans are on their way to completely normalizing Donald Trump's literal Hitler rhetoric that migrants are poisoning the blood of the country. It's designed to get more than just MAGA Republicans to believe that not only is immigration a huge danger, but that it's a problem that only Trump can fix. And yet, 
when presented with a potential bipartisan deal for new asylum and border laws, Republicans don't actually want to do anything. After top congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House Wednesday, Senator Lindsey Graham told MAGA Republicans in the House that they would not do any better. To those who think that if President Trump wins, which I hope he does, that we can get a better deal, you won't. You got to get 60 votes in the United States Senate. So to my Republican friends, to get this kind of border security without granting a pathway to citizenship is really unheard of. But any potential progress is likely doomed since Trump says no. Last night on his fake Twitter, he demanded that Republicans reject a border deal unless they get everything. Well, everything like what? We already knew that the fix was in hours earlier when during an appearance on Fox, Laura Ingram enforced how informed House Speaker Mike Johnson that Trump had just told her that he was adamantly opposed to a deal with Democrats. President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him uh, night before last about the same subject. Joining me now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and a scholar of authoritarianism at New York University, and Michael Steele, former RNC chair and co-host of the new MSNBC morning show, The Weekend. And Chairman Steele, I will start with you because you used to run this party. I mean, I think it is clear that on this they want the issue, not the solution, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there, there's no no doubt about that. And, and it's really interesting. The history behind the point you just made really goes back to the end of the Reagan term and and certainly at the end of the Bush term, where President George Bush, 43, actually developed a deal, got a deal, had had a consensus built in the House and the Senate um, in, back in 2006. And it was ironically in this instance, uh, the Senate conservatives killed the bill. The bill died in the Senate. And that began this long trudge to nowhere on immigration because it was worth more for as political fodder than policy solution. And, and so now in this environment where you've got uh, someone like Donald Trump who who does not care about the issue other than build a wall, let's keep Mexicans out, et cetera. Um, this is the political narrative that fuels money and it fuels uh, passionate votes. It draws out people who live in parts of the country who on any given day of the week don't have to think about a border, but are furious about it and, and really concerned because, you know, they could be coming to my neighborhood. They could be taking my jobs. Etc. So that's the real thrust of this. And Lindsey Graham's right. Um, there is no bill in the Senate um, in a Trump term uh, because they're going to need those 60 votes and Democrats are not going to give them to them if it if it requires everything. Right. And I mean, I will I am old enough to remember Marco Rubio, who was part of the gang of eight that was negotiating those deals, helping to kill the deal that his own staff was writing because Rush Limbaugh told him to. Rush Limbaugh yelled right. at him, and then suddenly he was against the deal uh, that he and John McCain were, their staffs were writing. But the other piece of it, Ruth ben Giat, that I think is the nefarious part of it, you know, there's the, we want the issue because it galvanizes our voters, but there's also the part of it that galvanizes autocracy and autocratic thinking. I want to play a couple of sound bites. This first one is the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, lamenting that his forces cannot shoot people. 
And the only thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not uh, shooting people who come across the border uh, because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder. And he, his uh, immigration police, his immigration forces in the state of Texas refused to intervene when a mother and two children aged 10 and 8 were caught in his web of, you know, uh, uh, his, his sort of makeshift barbed wire fence and they drowned. So there's actual literal dying going on in the state of Texas. And this is what he believes uh, Greg Abbott and I assume Trump believes that the base wants. Yeah, and I'm glad you started the segment talking about psyops because propaganda is not just trying to get somebody to believe one false fact, like vaccines cause autism. Propaganda is actually changing the way people think and feel through the associations they make. So famously, like, you know, in Nazi Germany, if you heard the word Jew, you were trained to think filthy and dangerous. So Trump and the Republicans are doing the same thing to immigrants. And of course, there's a long history of, of you know, racializing and, and hating immigrants in our country. But the, the blood polluter thing, to, to, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, link them to not only crime, taking away people's jobs, um, but also polluting the blood, this goes right back to fascism. I, I truly feel like I've spent way too many hours uh, looking at fascist rhetoric and Mussolini in 1927 actually talked about, these are his words, black, brown, and yellow people trying to come over the border and ruin, quote, white civilization. So this is a very old, it's actually the biggest through line in authoritarianism, right-wing authoritarianism, is people coming over the border to ruin your country and ruin white Christian civilization. Yeah. And, and Victor Orban uses that exact same framing. Uh, Meloni yeah. in Italy has used that same framing. And Hitler literally used the polluting the blood let line. It's literally straight out of Hitler. Well, now let, let me allow you viewers to listen to the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of the great state of Louisiana, literally justify that rhetoric. That's not language I would use, but but I understand the urgency of President Trump's admonition. He's been saying this since he ran for president the first time, that we have to secure the border. And I think the vast majority of the American people understand the necessity of that, and I think they agree with his position. But that statement goes beyond what you are personally comfortable with. It's it's not language I would use, but but I understand. um, Because it sounds hateful. Well, it's, it's not hateful. Well, it's awfully mealy-mouthed, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Uh, he's essentially downplaying Hitler talk. Yeah, and what's going on, and this is also Trump's uh, comment about vermin, which the GOP has not disavowed, there is an active attempt to dehumanize uh, groups of people, immigrants, uh, in order to create a climate that's conducive to uh, both getting people to participate in any violence that will come, mass deportations, there'll be many abuses, but also not care, cultivating apathy, cultivating cruelty and indifference, which is what uh, your the Greg Abbott uh, clip was showing. So it, this is this goes straight back to autocracies need people to be indifferent as well as being cruel. You have to turn the cheek. Mm-hmm when the the police or others start uh, persecuting people. This is the secret. So how do you kill kindness and empathy in people? Well, you do it the way that we're seeing these things done now. 
And, you know, Michael Steele, that's precisely it. And you also take away the idea of admonition and embarrassment. I mean, you and I were literally together in the same city of Cleveland when Steve Mm -hmm. King essentially ended his career and self-immolated in a conversation with our very own Chris Hayes, in which he justified saying that only white people have contributed to civilization. He was then on his way out after saying, why can't I say white nationalism? He would have survived the present era of the Republican Party. Well, it, it says a lot about uh, that 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 through line that that Ruth just laid out. You know, it's there. It's it's an ever present part. And what happens is the timeline shrinks. So you you look at the arc from the 1930s to today, but then you look at the arc from the point you know that you're talking about in 2016, 2020, and that and now. It's a much shorter timeline and how much more quickly we're moving into that time, into that space to embrace the very things that you were just talking about, you know, to sort of find acceptance because you don't want to be bothered or to find, um, you know, appreciation for something because it aligns a little bit more with your view of the world. Well, you know, to the speaker's point, when he says, well, it's not the way I would say it. Oh, you would just clean it up. But the intent is the same. Yeah. You wouldn't use the words that are associated with Hitler, but the intent is the same. So tell explain to me the difference. So basically what we're seeing, and I think we're going to see more of, particularly in this cycle, is they're going to dress it up and dumb it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They're going to put, it literally is going to be the lipstick on the very, very incredibly ugly and dangerous pig. Yeah, indeed. Uh, The same way they have dressed up an insurrection as a tourist visit. Uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat and Michael Steele, thank you both very much. Still ahead, day three of the E. Jean Carroll defamation damages trial, this time without Trump's disruptive antics. We'll be right back. For a second day, writer E. Jean Carroll was on the stand in her second defamation trial against Donald Trump. It was a much calmer day in the courtroom, perhaps because unlike the past two days, Trump was not present as he was in Florida attending his mother-in-law's funeral. That, of course, didn't stop him from continuing his attacks and again defaming Carroll. In a 1 a.m. social media post, he repeated his denials that he ever had anything to do with her, nor would he want to, and again called it a made-up and disgusting hoax. Of course, a federal jury disagreed with Trump last year, finding him both liable for sexually abusing Ms. Carroll and for defaming her. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, who was in the courtroom today. Talk about the difference between uh, E. Jean Carroll's day today and her day yesterday. Well, you know, Joyce, some of the issues that she was asked about today are no less difficult to talk about. And there were times where it was difficult for her to talk about, particularly when Alina Haba, Trump's lawyer, insinuated that E. Jean Carroll is better off today than she was four years ago, because their theme seems to be a variant on the Kanye famous song. It's like, I made that rhymes with which famous. Yeah. Right. And so she was saying, you make more money now. You have celebrity friends. You're celebrated on Twitter by the likes of John Cusack and Bette Midler and you go to fancy parties. And aren't you more famous now because of Trump? And because you were sexually assaulted. 
But also ignoring the fact that E. Jean Carroll was Carrie Bradshaw before Candace Bushnell ever thought about Carrie Bradshaw. That's right. She was a pioneering journalist and advice columnist. She wrote five books, yeah. a 27-year-long column. But going she back to— She had a TV show on this, the predecessor of this network. She did. She shared a stage manager with yes. you. Yes. But going back to her response, her response was, no, I'm not better off. Yes, more people know who I am. And many of those people hate me. They revile me as a liar and a whack job. And I sleep with a gun beside my bed because I am worried about my physical safety. So I want to be clear. Some of the testimony today was contentious. And yet, Aging Carroll's demeanor was different today without Donald Trump in the courtroom. Yeah. You and I were talking before the segment started yeah. about how in earlier days, Aging Carroll was like perched on the edge of her seat. Her posture ramrod straight, almost as if to pitch herself away from him, knowing that he was seated a couple of rows in back of her. In yeah. this courtroom, the plaintiff and defendant don't sit side by side. The right. plaintiff sits in one row, defendant two rows behind it. Aging Carroll just could not stand being in that room with Donald Trump. If you didn't believe her before you saw that posture, that's trauma personified in a seated position. Yeah. I mean, the the other piece of it, there was an expert witness who also testified in the Rudy Giuliani case in which he was uh, he was forced to pay huge damages uh, to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. This is the same expert, right? That's right. And she testified in Eugene's first case, too. Yeah. Um, she was basically testifying to what it would take to restore Eugene's reputation. So putting aside what damages Eugene might be owed for her emotional harm mm-hmm. and what punitive damages the jury awards specifically to punish Donald Trump, just what would it cost if you wanted to mount what she calls a reputation restoration campaign? Sure. She estimates it would cost between 10 and $12 million. The thing I thought was most interesting was that Trump's lawyers were sort of nibbling around the edges of that report, but they never found fault with the actual numbers. Mm. They don't have a damages expert of their own, in fact. So what they were trying to do was like poke little holes in it here and there, asking her, did you consider how much money E. Jean Carroll made? Did you consider how her reputation has improved since? Things like that, as if to insinuate, we're not even going to try to bat away these numbers because our position is she wasn't damaged at all. And if she was, yeah. it's on her. It's, it's her on her. Uh, really quickly, Alina Hamba, talk about her for a moment. You know, I have a different feeling about Alina Hamba or a position <laughs> on Alina Hamba than many legal observers. I tend to think she's a really talented political communicator. But didn't the judge say to her at one point, isn't this like l- law school 101? 101. Yeah. yeah. And so... I want to be clear. I don't think Alina Haba is dumb. And I don't think Alina Haba is failing up performatively. I think she is not a skilled trial lawyer because Mm -hmm. those are not skills she has valued or needed in her career. She doesn't know the federal rules of evidence well, for example. Yeah, yeah. but she's a performer. But she's she's a performer. performer. And that's why Trump likes her. Lisa Rubin, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. uh, Coming up. The Department of Justice has just released its report on the police response to the Uvalde school shooting, calling it a significant failure. More on that straight ahead. We must never forget the shooter's heinous act that day. And the victims and survivors should never have been trapped with that shooter for more than an hour as they waited for their rescue. I told the families gathered last night what I hope is clear among the hundreds of pages and thousands of details in this report. Their loved ones deserve better. 
That was Attorney General Merrick Garland on a sweeping DOJ report outlining the, quote, cascading failures of the law enforcement response to last year's Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde, Texas, in which 19 kids and two teachers were murdered by a mass shooter. According to the report, the most significant failure was that responding officers should have immediately recognized the incident as an active shooter situation. The report notes that the generally accepted practice would have been for law enforcement to immediately and without hesitation penetrate the classroom with the objective of stopping the shooter and that the resulting delay provided an opportunity for the active shooter to have additional time to reassess and re-engage his deadly actions inside the classroom. It also contributed to a delay in medical interventions with the potential to impact survivability. So Children's Live may have been saved by a different response. The report also has horrifying details on how families were notified after the shooting. Some received incorrect information, suggesting their family members had survived when they had not. And others were notified of the deaths of their family members by personnel untrained in delivering such painful news. Here's how family members reacted to the report today. I hope that the failures end today and the local officials do what wasn't done that day, do right by the victims and survivors of Rob Elementary. Because the DOJ stamp is on there, maybe y'all will start taking us seriously now instead of telling us to move on, telling us to sweep it under the rug and not doing a damn thing about it. And in the wake of the report, some are calling for criminal charges. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.